Shalom and welcome to lesson 14 of the Gospel According to Moses, Exodus. This is Reverend John Ferret again. And I wanted to go back and just review the four goals of the podcast series, The Gospel According to Moses, whether here it's in Exodus or whether it's the Genesis series, later on will be the other three books of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And remember, the approach of Light of Menorah is taking the text of God's Word and putting it into its historical context, focusing on the archaeology, the geography, the history, the customs and culture, that would be called, the customs and culture would be called the Jewish roots, you might say, of the Bible, and even the languages of the ancient Middle East. Now, with regards to the four purposes, purpose one, goal one, is that Jesus tells us that the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, actually actually all the whole Old Testament, testify of him. You can read this in John 5.39, Luke 24.27, Luke 24.44. And, and those verses in Luke, those verses... Jesus is meeting with his disciples after his resurrection in the upper room, and it says that he tells them all about himself in the books of Moses, in the Torah. So where is Jesus in the Torah? Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? For Jesus and Paul, there's no New Testament. So again, Jesus says all scripture testifies of him. He says this in John 5.39. It's between... 24 and 30 AD. So how does the Torah testify of him? A second goal is Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32 that as disciples we are to immerse ourselves and stand upon his word and we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. In John 17, 17 he is praying to his father and says that we're sanctified, made holy, by his word. So it seems as if Jesus is saying we need to study his word. We need to study his Torah. We need to be relying on his word to be true disciples. And so this is what we'll do. We're going to study his word. A very good goal <laughs> as we're studying here. To know the truth and, the, and that the truth will set us free. Third aspect is... The Hebrews were coming out of Egypt, and they were the first readers of the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But all they knew was Egypt. We have already seen this in previous lessons here in the Exodus series, that they assimilated into the Egyptian culture. All they knew were the gods of Egypt and the mythology of Egypt. So, what did they hear, and what did they see? when they were coming out of Egypt. Because as Dr. John Kareed, a brilliant theologian, archaeologist, Egyptologist, in his book Against the Gods shows how God uses things in the Torah, creation, the things that he creates in the Torah, the laws in the Torah, that are directly opposed to the laws and the gods in ancient Egypt. So how did the first Hebrews hear the words. 
This is a goal of ours. And fourth, for at least 60 to 100 years after Jesus' ascension, there's no New Testament. Oh, some say Matthew was written in 42 AD. That's, a, that's an argument. It was first written in Hebrew, and then Mark got a hold of Matthew's book and uh, worked with Luke and also Peter and wrote his. Well, that's an argument. Um, most scholars hold to the fact that Mark was the first gospel written in Greek in about 70 AD. Regardless, though, let's assume 70 AD. Now they have to copy it, and then it's got to be sent. Do you know how long it's going to take for it to have widespread availability? So indeed, for 60 to 100 years after Jesus' ascension, they had no New Testament. And they changed the world. They changed the world by going out to make disciples, preaching the gospel, and they did not have the New Testament. We need to understand how they looked upon the Torah and how they saw the gospel and the message of the kingdom of the Lord in the first five books of the Bible. Now, this handout that I'm re uh, reviewing is available on the website. So if you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, and menorah, again, is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, all one word, lightofmenorah.org, and if you find the picture for this lesson, lesson 14, and in the description, in the session description prior to where you can click and listen to the audio, I have linked you to the four goals of the gospel according to Moses, both this one in Exodus and the one in Genesis. And so you'll be able to find it there. So let's continue our study. And we are in Exodus chapter 4, and we left off and ended at Exodus 4, verse 23. So we're going to pick that up, and we're going to read Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 24, through the end of the chapter. Reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And what we learned last time was Moses, his wife Zipporah, and his two sons, they're on their way to Egypt right now. So this is what's happening on the journey. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed down and worshipped. Now, we're going to be looking at three verses as we come face to face with these three verses that are very puzzling and very perplexing to both Jewish scholars 
and also Christian scholars. And again, back in Exodus 4, we're going to be concentrating on verses 24 through 26. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Now let me just stop here right now because we're starting to correct the mistranslations that we have even in the New American Standard. It says in verse 25 that Zipporah threw the foreskin of her son at Moses' feet. In the original text in Hebrew, the name Moses does not appear. It's an assumption by the translators, because that's the way they thought the verse was translated. That's what it meant, and it's not there. This is critical. We'll come back to that later. So really, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at his feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood for me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Verses 24 through 26. Now, this is very perplexing. But not in the English, in the Hebrew. When we get in the Hebrew, something is off. Just for instance, in the original Hebrew, the name Moses does not appear. Something's off. So who does God want to put to death? Most immediately, like the translators, they assume it's Moses. But his name doesn't even appear here in the verses. The only person mentioned in these verses is the name of Zipporah, Moses' wife, and the fact of her son, not sons. If you go back to verse, I believe, 17 or 14, or wherever, it was just prior to this, it says Moses took his wife and his sons, Gershom and Eleazar. But here it's son. And then it talks about a bridegroom? How can Moses be a bridegroom? That doesn't make any sense because he just didn't get married. He's got two boys. So how can he be a bridegroom? So I mentioned that Jewish and Gentile scholars alike they recognize the confusing nature of this event. They're trying to figure what it what what it's doing here, first of all. But it's in Hebrew, not in English. And in English, we start making all sorts of crazy stuff up, like putting the name Moses in there, because we assume that's what it meant. But the name Moses is not there, and that's critical. Now, we're going to consider the great Jewish Torah scholar Nahum Sarna. And he has written the commentary on Genesis and in Exodus in the JPS, Jerusalem Publication Society, Torah Commentary. I'm going to take a look at his comments with regards to these three verses. Sarna says, The account of Moses' return to Egypt is interrupted by a brief but thoroughly perplexing story. So Sarna is going to be basically saying that he thinks, it's his view, that this was part of a larger story that's actually missing, missing from the Torah. At first glance, Sarna goes on to say, the obscure three-verse narrative seems to lack integration into the larger context of the chapter. Moses is not mentioned in these three verses. We just saw that. If he is the afflicted person, one would 
one could well ask how God would want to kill him. God just chose him. He's the chosen instrument for the liberation of Israel as he sets out in fulfillment of the divine command. To complicate matters further, the application of some of the verbs, personal pronouns, and pronomial suffixes is unclear. Finally, there is also uncertainty about the meaning of some of the language and about the person to whom it is directed. Is it directed at Moses or is it directed as a son? These various obscurities arise primarily because the account here is only a truncated version of a larger popular story that circulated orally in Israel. Now that's Nahum Sarna's assumption. He doesn't give any references to this. So it could very well be that indeed we're missing part of the story. This is, this is likely in terms of archaeology. Because today all we have is the 9th century copy of the Masoretic text, the complete Torah. The oldest scroll of the Torah was, was completed in 1250 A.D., and we have that one. Now, when we go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you say, well, wait a minute. All of the Bible books are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Y yes, they are, but the only complete book, if I'm correct on this, is Isaiah. Now, I, I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure Isaiah is the only complete book that we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Everything else is bits and pieces. So do we have the complete story here? Perhaps not. Perhaps Nahum Sarna is making a strong point here. My example would be, if we go to Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, it talks about that Moses is bringing his sons on the journey. Now, his sons are Gershom and Eleazar. But in these verses, it's only one son that is being circumcised. Or is there other texts that we're missing that somehow between the 9th century A.D. and 1400 B.C. was lost. It could be. Maybe we don't have the complete story. So, we have two choices. And this was dramatically presented by Dennis Prager in his book called The Rational Bible Exodus and his commentary. And he brings it down, he said, so when we take a look at the JPS Torah commentary and other Jewish scholars, we have, two, we have two choices. Either one, God wants to kill Moses since he did not circumcise his son, or two, he wants to kill Moses' son since his son wasn't circumcised. So it, it's either one of the two choices. Dr. John Kareed, as I mentioned to you before, an awesome theologian and archaeologist, not only has he written against the gods, which I highly recommend to everybody to talk about polemic theology and how God uses the writings of the Torah specifically to combat and develop rituals and feasts and laws that are directly opposed to what the Hebrews were actually experiencing in ancient Egypt. But he also wrote definitely the, or he didn't write it, he was the main editor of the Archaeological Study Bible from Crossway. It came out probably about, about a year ago. So he is a very reputable, renowned scholar. And he has his Torah Bible commentary. And so I'm looking at his commentary on Exodus. 
And when we take a look at this, Dr. Creed is saying that God met him and sought to kill him. And the him is a pronoun, and we don't know specifically who it refers to. Does it refer to Moses? Or does it refer to Gershom? Because Gershom is Moses' firstborn son. Dr. Creed says he's got a theory. And his theory is that God is speaking to Gershom and that God wanted to kill Gershom because it wasn't circumcised. Now a little bit later on in verse 25, Zipporah takes a flint knife she cuts the foreskin of her son and she touched it to his feet. That's what it says, touched it to his feet. Now, clear, Moses is not the central figure of the episode, but it's his son. But again, remember, only Gershom seems to be mentioned here. He's the firstborn. What about Eleazar? And again, we go back to Nahum Sarna. And Nahum Sarna is basically saying it could very well be from the original that we're missing a bigger part of the story that for some reason the document with that page was lost. Who knows? Now one thing about Zipporah that we need to know is why does she pick up the flint knife and do this? Well, one of the things is she's a Midianite. And the Midianites are direct descendants of Abraham. You can take a look at this as Genesis in Genesis 25, verse 2. Because Abraham took a second wife. But in Genesis 17, verse 10, when God spells out the covenant of circumcision, God says to Abraham, all of your descendants must be circumcised. Which means one of his descendants was Midian which means Zipporah is a direct ancestor of Abraham. And she knows this. She knows this practice that was handed down from Abraham. She's part of the family. Another aspect, though, here, too, is the Hebrew word that's in here, katan damim. And translators have picked up on this and they basically chatan damin basically means the bridegroom of blood uh, however we have already gone through this the Hebrew word used here according to Karid and other scholars chatan not only refers to a bridegroom but can refer to a son-in-law a father-in-law a mother-in-law a sister-in-law it's used of Jethro in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 8. We, we talked about that. Jethro is not the father-in-law of Moses. Reuel is the father-in-law. Jethro probably is a brother-in-law because that's the word that's used. And again, we see even our translators in the New American Standard, for instance, are using father-in-law, and it's wrong. It is some relative by marriage. Curry goes on to say the basic idea of the word stresses that a person has been made part of the family, that he or she has become a blood relative through the cov a covenant relationship, the covenant relationship of marriage. Now, Sarna, he brings up another point. And he said there is an Arabic word, a very interesting Arabic word, 
that's chatan, very similar to the Hebrew chatan, and it means to protect, and it also means circumcision. In other words, it can mean protection by circumcision. Wow. So we have two ways of looking at this. One way is to say, based upon Katan Damim, that you, meaning Gershom, Moses' son, based upon the fact that Zipporah circumcises him, now he has become part of the family. He is now a covenant partner by the blood of circumcision. He's an in-law, you might say. But if we go to Sarna, it could also be that now he's protected under the blood of circumcision as being part of the descendants of Abraham. Now many scholars have translated the fact that Zipporah took the foreskin, the blood of the foreskin, and she places it at the child's feet. This would be Gershom, not Moses' feet, because Moses' name is not mentioned. But the Hebrew word for feet is also the Hebrew word for the genitalia. And it seems what Sephora is doing is smearing the blood of the circumcision on the private parts of Gershom. Creed stresses the point and he says this may serve as a precursor or preview of the fourth company Exodus event in which God passes over the houses of his people who have blood smeared on their doorposts. The blood in both cases, in this case of Gershom, and also later on of Israel, serves as a protective sign against the wrath of Yahweh, against the wrath of the Lord. <laughs> this is amazing. So God let him alone, and so indeed God is not going to do anything to Gershom to kill him. Remember, this is just John Curry's theory. And based upon the Hebrew, based upon the proper use of the Hebrew words, this is a strong possibility. Because why would God want to kill Moses, his chosen one, to free the people out of, out of Egypt? In support of the idea that this little episode is a paradigm of the later Passover event is the fact that the son is circumcised and the blood sign is put on him. The Lord let him alone. So when we take a look at the 10th plague, the 10th plague where the firstborn, all the firstborns of Egypt were killed. For Israel, the Lord simply passes by the Israelite homes because they have the blood sign on them. This is the same thing as Moses' son. The son is now considered part of the blood covenant because of the circumcision. Finally, Kareed says, the immediately preceding context of verses 22 to 23, in other words, going into verse 21 uh, and verse 20, etc., supports this theory that he has, this interpretation. There it is dealing with the distinction between the firstborn of Yahweh, the firstborn of God, and the firstborn of Pharaoh, the physical symbol of those who are in the covenant with Yahweh and are his firstborn is circumcision. Moses' son now bears the sign that he belongs to the Lord. He belongs to Yahweh.
So this possibility really makes sense. The firstborn of Pharaoh will be killed. But the firstborn of Moses will be spared by the blood. If we go back to Exodus chapter 4 in verses 22 and 23, we find that God says to Moses, make sure you tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son, not sons. So we have Pharaoh, his firstborn will be killed, but the firstborn of Moses is spared by the blood, and all Israel, the firstborn of God, will be saved by the blood on the doorposts. All of them are chatan damin. They're family marriage members by covenant. Remember, marriage is a covenant. They're family members. They're in-laws. They're all related now because of the covenant of circumcision. But then, when we take a look at this potential solution that Kareed presents, which is just a fascinating fascinating solution and one that really makes sense it takes us to the first goal of this study the first goal of this study is how does the Torah testify of Jesus how does the Torah testify of Yeshua now John Kareed's solution provides me with some things that of, of possible amazing connections I'm going to present these connections to you and they're real. I, I'm not making these up. You know it's there. So, what do we have? We have Kareed's solution. The Dr. Kareed is saying that in those three verses, it's all about Gershom, God wanting to kill Gershom because he is not circumcised, that Zipporah actually wiped the blood of the circumcision on his private parts. So Moses' firstborn is delivered from Yahweh's wrath by the blood. Yahweh was going to kill his son because he wasn't circumcised. But he's delivered from God's wrath by the blood of the covenant. But all Israel, which is God's firstborn son, is delivered from Yahweh's wrath on the night of Passover by the blood. Because God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over your house. This is in Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13. We haven't got there, but we'll, when we do, obviously we're going to remind ourselves of this. So Moses' firstborn is delivered from the wrath of God by the blood. All of Israel, God's firstborn, is delivered from Yahweh's wrath by the blood. And what about us? All of us who are new creatures in Christ, born again, we too are delivered from Yahweh's wrath by the blood of the Lamb. And we read this in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, when Paul says, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Amazing. Isn't it this is isn't this just like Yahweh? He was the same then, he's the same now, he will be the same forever.
It's like a mirror. God is saying, as I provide redemption, as I save people from my wrath, we will be seeing a connection to demonstrate the fact that this is part of God's engineering, part of God's plan. In the Orthodox rabbinic Jewish commentary, the Chumash, the great Rabbi Maimonides, who is also known as Rambam, he makes some comments here, and it's related to Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. But there's a point that I want to make in here, and that is, Maimonides states a fundamental principle in understanding the Torah's narrative concerning the patriarchs. In other words, concerning Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And basically, what Maimonides is saying is when we take a look at the Torah, whatever happens to the patriarchs, whatever happens to the father, is a sign in the future for the children. It's a sign for the future. It's a prediction for the future for the sons. The Torah relates at length such incidents as their journeys, digging of wells, etc., because they serve as lessons for the future. The lives of the fathers, the events in the fathers' lives, are signs for the future. Signs for the sons. This is what we just saw. In events like this, we see the future. We see what's planned. We see Jesus. Moses' firstborn son is saved from God's wrath, saved from being killed by God, by the blood. All of Israel, God's firstborn son, are saved from God's wrath by the blood. And we too are saved from God's wrath by the blood. <sighs> Indeed, the lives of the fathers like Moses, lives of the fathers like of all of Israel, are signs for us for the future, signs of Jesus too. So is John Kareed's solution the right one, perhaps? Dr. John Kareed, a brilliant theologian, a great evangelical Christian, I, I, has really shown us, taken us deeply into the Hebrew and provided a, a superb analysis that I have never heard from any other scholar. His solution, it's an amazing possibility. And once again, we see the gospel in the Torah. And who wrote the Torah? Moses. We see the gospel according to Moses. So as we come to the end of chapter 4, we take a look at chapter 4, verse 27. And it's an interesting statement. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went, Aaron went, and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. So Aaron went, but in verse 14 of this chapter, Moses had just said to God, I, I don't want to go, find somebody else. God really gets angry. And God tells him, listen, Aaron is coming. 
He's going to go with you, Moses. He's going to be your voice. You give him the words that I've given you so that he can speak. But wait a minute. That's verse 14. God knew Aaron was coming back then. Moses is still before the burning bush. So we come to verse 27, and it says God spoke to Aaron. That means verse 27 is out of order. Moses is referring here in verse 27 to an event that happened even before Moses went up to the burning bush. God spoke to Aaron and said, go meet your brother. And it's got to, it must have happened before the burning bush. You go back to chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Exodus. I mean, Moses first comes to the burning bush in chapter 3. Verse 14 of chapter 4, God says, hey, Aaron's coming. But in verse 27, God shows us that God had told Aaron to go. So while Moses is at the burning bush, Aaron is on his way. This is a setup. This is, God had it all laid out. This plan is engineered and put together in all its detail. God's plans can't be stopped. We can read this. This is verified in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 24, it says, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. Verse 27 in Isaiah 14, it continues, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? <laughs> when we actually take a look at that verse 27 that God talked to Aaron to send him on his way to go meet Moses, are we surprised that this must have happened way before the burning bush? He's not going to send his messenger Moses out alone. He's going to send them out two by two. God is the same then, he's the same now, and the same forever, because when he's here, what does he do with his disciples, his messengers, to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth? What does he do in a number of places in the gospels? He sends them out two by two. <laughs> so amazing. So we come to the end of chapter 4, and truly, I think we can agree together with Maimonides, just as he sees it in the Bible, that the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua, lives of Moses, David, some of the events in their lives are signs for the sons predictions for the future. Amazing. So I'll see you in Lesson 15, and I wish you Shalom.